We are winding down our study of First John. We'll be in First John through the rest of the month, and then beginning in June, we will be studying the book of Esther all through the summer. So I hope you'll join us for that study as well. I hope this book has been encouraging to you at times, but also challenging. And it really is my hope that as we work our way book by book through God's Word, that you are storing up treasures that will last you as long as you are on this earth. So if you're a believer, I hope you've been challenged with the importance of both faith and deed. And if you are not a believer, I hope that you have been overwhelmed by the love of God that he has towards sinners. So this morning, the passage is mainly about prayer. For the majority of Christians, prayer is probably the spiritual discipline that we are weakest at. If I were to poll everyone in the room, my guess is that the majority of people would say that prayer is something that they really struggle with. If you'll remember last year at this time, we had Donald Whitney come and he taught on the importance of prayer. And on that Sunday night, he talked about praying through the Bible. And from that book, here's a quote that he says, I maintain that people truly born again, genuinely Christian people, often do not pray simply because they do not feel like it. And the reason they don't feel like praying is that when they do pray, they tend to say the same old things about the same old things. In the fall, if you'll remember, I've referenced this a number of times, the State of Theology report came out, which you can Google and you can see that report. And one of the questions that they asked the participants to either agree or disagree with was this statement. God is unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. And of the 3,011 adults who responded to that statement, 18% strongly agreed with that statement. 14% somewhat agreed. And 10% were unsure how to answer it. So if you're doing the math, that's 42% of the responses to this statement, God is unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. 42% of the people that responded to that report. This is what they believe. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that prayer is often a weakness if people don't actually believe that God is concerned about what happens in their day-to-day life. Now, the passage today is not an argument for the importance of prayer, but rather the confidence that we should bring to the Lord in prayer. So as we work our way through the text today, number one, we're going to be reminded of the confidence in our salvation. Number two, our posture in prayer. And then number three, God's response in prayer. So number one, the confidence of our, in our salvation Number two, our posture in prayer. And then number three, God's response in prayer. Number one, the confidence in our salvation. John gives a lot of information in verse 13. And much of it is actually review for us. But let's take a look at what he says. Who is he writing to? He says it very clearly. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. This epistle is written to Christians who are combating false teaching, 
from false Christians that were denying that Jesus came as God in the flesh and were denying that once they were saved, it was possible to still struggle with sin. So who's he writing to? Christians. What purpose is he writing? That they may know that they have eternal life. That's the purpose. Now these things that you see in verse 13 is a reference to the whole letter. Which is why we wanted to systematically work through the whole letter. So that when we get to verse 13 we understand what John is saying when he says these things. John wrote the whole letter to Christians so that they could know that they have eternal life. Now there's something deep within our sinful hearts that deceives even Christians into thinking that they cannot know that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And John is reminding all the Christians that are reading this letter and all of us in this room today who are Christians that you can know that you will have eternal life. These false teachers that were infiltrating the churches were confusing the true Christians into thinking that they were not saved because they didn't believe the same things that these false teachers believed. The issue in determining whether or not someone is a Christian is very simple. Have they repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ alone? Period. It's basic. It's fundamental. The only response to the gospel that will ensure internal life with God in heaven is repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, I want you to leave today knowing that if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone, you can know that you have eternal life. Non-Christians, if you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone, then not only can you not know that you have eternal life, but you don't have eternal life. Because eternal life is only found through faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of sins that happens as a result of the Holy Spirit doing the work of regeneration in our hearts. Repentance and faith, as we often say, are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. Many people in our world today... They want pardon before God, but they don't want purity before God. They want forgiveness of sin without conversion. The Bible is clear. Repentance and faith is the only proper response to the call of the gospel. Now you might be asking, but what if my repentance and my faith wasn't good enough or wasn't strong enough? As we said a couple of weeks ago, the person with the weakest faith and the weakest repentance in Christ alone is secure in their salvation over the person who is trying to be made right with God on their own. God is not measuring your salvation based off off the quantity or the quality even of your repentance and faith. He's basing your salvation on the perfection of his son Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So, 
Are you doubting your salvation today? Most Christians, at some point or another, throughout their walk with the Lord, oftentimes do experience periods of doubt. It's a terrible place to be. I've been there. It's awful. But when John uses no, he doesn't mean no in the same way that we often think of the word no. There's a short little booklet that's been written by Jeremy Pierre. It's actually a book that we pass out from time to time. It's called, How Can I Be Sure I'm Saved? And in that book, he talks about our ability to know is dependent, while God's ability to know is independent. What is attainable for us, though, in our knowing is knowledgeable trust. It's a knowledge that is dependent on God and what he says about knowing that our salvation is secure. So knowledgeable trust is what John means in this epistle when he talks about knowing. Our confidence in Christ is not in our knowing, but what we know about God revealed in the scriptures. So look at a passage that we'll read in a couple of weeks. Later on in this same epistle, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The confidence in your salvation comes from the objective truth of what the Bible teaches is required for one to be a Christian. And that is repentance and faith. It is the truth of who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. Not on whether you feel like emotionally or even mentally that you are saved. So when you are prone to doubt your salvation, or if you have ever been prone, or one day you might feel prone to doubt your salvation, I'm going to drive you back to the objective truth of God's word. And in God's word, it says, all of those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ Jesus can be secure. Now it's possible that even right now there are some in this room that are feeling uneasy about their salvation. And it is possible that that is actually the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It could be that you haven't repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone. And the Spirit could be convicting you of that reality. But for others, perhaps you are doubting the feeling of being saved. But objectively, you know that you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone. Don't trust your feelings when it comes to the legitimacy of your salvation. Trust the Bible. The finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later and your response in repentance and faith. Do not try to add on additional layers to what it means to be saved. Return to God's word and let the word of God either confirm or deny 
whether or not you are in Christ. As John keeps moving on through this passage, he moves on to this issue of prayer, specifically talking about our posture in prayer. In verse 14, he discusses confidence. The confidence is defined for us in the second half of that verse. He says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's the confidence. It's defined for us. We talked at length when we went through the Lord's Prayer back in the fall about the will of God. And I want to review the definition of the will of God because it's pertinent to our sermon today. Here's the definition of God's will. The attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and authority of himself and all creation. So John says that when we ask anything according to God's will, which we just defined, he hears us. Now the word that John uses for hear means responding positively to the request. Also, anything in verse 14 is important. While a believer is certainly free to pray for anything, this does not mean that they will be given the affirmative answer to whatever that request is unless, the Bible says, it aligns with God's will. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't bother praying since God's will is going to happen anyways? No, of course not. God gives us this instrument known as prayer so that we will depend on him, so that we will desire intimacy with him. Prayer is the tool that God has given us to fully devote ourselves to him. One commentator said it like this, believers are free to pray whatever they wish as servants of Christ. But the requests that they can be confident God will comply with are those that lay hold of his intentions and plans. So, when we go to the Lord in confidence in prayer, we should, as the scriptures teach us, approach the throne of grace with boldness, have deep faith and trust that God will answer prayers, but ultimately know that his will will be done. So we pray for healing of those that are sick. We pray for marriages to be restored. We pray for lost people to be saved. We pray for temptations to be removed in our life. We pray for victory over besetting sins. But remember, even if we are not given the answer that we desire, we know that Romans 8.28 is and will always be true. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So it is in those what appear to be to us unanswered prayers that we must cling to Romans 8.28. And remember that God's will ultimately trumps whatever desire we had for God to respond. Just the other day I was in the hospital room of a faithful church member who was in the final stages of her life. 
And I entered into that room to have a time of prayer with her and her family. And in that particular moment, I couldn't answer definitively what God's will for her life was going to be. I knew what the doctors had told the family, that she would, in in fact, pass away. I suppose in that moment, I could have begun a passionate prayer for healing and that she would recover from heart failure. However, in that moment, I prayed that she would receive peace and joy from her Savior. I prayed that her mind and her heart would be filled with images and visions of Christ and his glory. And I prayed ultimately for her rest. And as I thought about that prayer in preparation for this sermon today, I realized that unintentionally what I had actually prayed for was God's will for this saint's life. That she would be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace. That her mind would be filled with images and visions of Christ. That is God's will for his children. That we would meditate and think on the glory and the beauty of Christ. That is God's will for our lives. And ultimately, the goal of God's creation is rest. We see that in the seventh day of creation. In God's big picture, Von Roberts says this, God has been at work to reestablish his kingdom and to call a people back into fellowship with himself. He wants us to enjoy the creation and enter into the perfection of the seventh day, his rest. So God's will for this dear saint in our church was accomplished. And my prayer was answered according to God's will as she now rests perfectly with her Savior In heaven. God's will was done in her life. So we pray according to Scripture. And as we pray for even those we know that are sick and are fighting cancer and are fighting all sorts of diseases, as we pray for healing, we can also pray that they would be filled with the joy and peace of Christ, that their minds and hearts would be filled with images and even visions of Christ and his glory, and that ultimately, no matter what happens, they would experience rest. That is always a safe prayer to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, we see God's response in prayer. Now, we can affirm that God hears us when we present our request to him. But that doesn't imply that the requests that we are asking of him automatically align with his will. Because we don't know God's will perfectly because we are fallen sinners. And sometimes what we perceive or even think to be God's will for our lives may in fact not be the case. Now some have taken these verses, 14 and 15 in particular, to say that if we bring our request to God and our faith is strong enough that God will always answer those prayers. I don't believe that's what 1 John is teaching. And I want to walk you through very quickly through 
the story of the Bible, to show you that there are in fact moments throughout Scripture where a saint of God was praying for God to do something and God does not answer it accordingly. Moses, in Exodus 32, he prayed for the people's sins to be forgiven. And God did not answer according to what Moses prayed. He refused Moses' request to cross the Jordan River in Deuteronomy 3. In the prophets, we have times where God's people cry out to him and he refuses to answer. Micah 3, Jeremiah 11. In the New Testament, probably the greatest example, Paul's thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 to 9, here's what it says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Here's the key phrase. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That he should take it away. That it should leave me. But he said to me... My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, so that the power of Christ... Oops, I skipped a spot. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And of course, the most famous example, even more than Paul's, is Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 39, Jesus says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know in that prayer, the desire in one sense of Jesus' heart to avoid the punishment and the pain And the agony of the cross was not granted. Why? Because it was God's will for his chosen people that Jesus must endure the death so that any that repent and believe in faith can be made reconciled to God. Robert Yarbrough, he's a commentator, he says this, The weight of biblical testimony is that prayer is not a means of resting concessions from God that he previously had not thought of granting. John is not teaching that God will grant every single request that we bring before him. But in the practice of prayer, we are increasing our intimacy and dependence on God. And we are learning as we pray these prayers that oftentimes God does not grant. We are learning that His will always trumps our own will. And this is why we bring requests before Him. God will delight always. He will always delight in hearing the prayers of His children. Even if He chooses to answer our prayers in a way that is different from what we would have hoped. So, what should we pray then? When we pray for God's will to be done, we can pray the following things. That lost people 
will turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. That aligns with God's will. The offer of the gospel to people. We can pray that we as Christians, those that are in Christ, would daily repent of our sin and pursue holiness as we walk with Christ. That aligns with God's will. We can pray that God would raise up, even from our own congregation, missionaries to go who feel called to leave everything they have known and proclaim the gospel amongst an unreached people group. We know that God's will is for the gospel to go out from this church. We can pray for our church as a whole, that we would grow in holiness and in our knowledge of the scriptures that would always align with God's will. We can pray that we would have a zeal for evangelism, to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family members, to invite them to our church so that they can hear the word of God as our choir sang so beautifully this morning, showing them Christ through the word. We can pray for a culture of discipleship to continue to blossom within our congregation so that when a new believer comes to faith in Christ, the congregation steps up and is willing to come alongside that brother or sister and teach them what it means to follow after Jesus. We can pray all of those things and more, and we can be confident that if we pray, the, if we pray those things, it aligns with God's will. So, if you are in Christ today, trust that God's will is going to happen in your life. It is for your good and for His glory, even if the circumstances are not what you would want it to be. Non-Christians, I pray, as many of us pray, that you would turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. So that you would experience the deep love that God has for you. You also need to know, non-Christians, that when you pray to God, it is only in His common grace that He stoops down to hear the prayers of unbelievers. Because if you're not in Christ, you have no high priest. You have no one who is mediating before the Father on your behalf. So any prayers that non-Christians pray to God are only being answered out of God's common grace towards them. Because you do not have Jesus reconciling you to a holy God and giving you access to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Richard Foster has written an excellent book on prayer. He's a Quaker, by the way. And Quakers are really interesting people. I love them. Here's what he says in that book, talking about prayer. He says, God invites us into the living room of his heart, where we can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship, where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength, where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom, where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity, where we can be co-laborers with him, working together 
to determine the outcomes of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found and where we can be vulnerable and free. It is also, he says, the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. As we pray, as we intercede, as Nick did this morning in our time of corporate intercession, we are going boldly before the throne of grace, pouring our hearts out to the Lord, Wanting him to know that we want to see lost people saved. We want to see church members healed of cancer. We want to see members comforted as they mourn the loss of loved ones. But what we want more than any of that is for the will of God to be done. In our church and in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, We are encouraged by John's teaching in this passage, especially for those of us in Christ. Do we realize how incredibly monumental it is that we can talk to you, the God of the universe, and you listen to us? What a blessing that is. And it is only because of the finished work of your son on the cross so that we can be reconciled to you. So we do want to be a church that faithfully prays, intercedes on behalf of our brothers and sisters. God, if prayer is a discipline that we struggle with, we pray that you would help us to overcome that difficulty. In the same way that we sang earlier that you can help us in our unbelief, you can also help us with our prayer life. There's nowhere else we need to turn to improve our prayer life other than asking you to help us improve our prayer life. So give us a hunger and a thirst, not only for righteousness, but for approaching you in prayer. And for any that are not in Christ today, we ask that your Holy Spirit regenerate their hearts and bring them to repentance and faith in Christ alone. It's in your name that we pray, amen.